Momentarily for class solidarity, cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed, deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion, and this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system, unionize labor rights, highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. The No Mickey Show. Hello and welcome to the Mickey Show. It's Friday, April 29th. Fem Friday. Fun from Friday. Uh, brief little uh, public service announcement. Uh, we are going to be taking next week off because we're human beings who need to take time off. Uh, but we're going to have other stuff up there. Best of. I know you guys love it. I, I like. I didn't realize. Well, first off, we've been doing this for a long time, so I don't imagine everybody's seen. You know, maybe you've joined uh, our audience, our community, a little bit later, and you've missed some of our early uh, big episodes or. You know, you forgot or you throwbacks. It's, it's nice to see what we predicted and what happened in some cases. Uh, so we're going to be putting a bunch of other stuff out there next week. But in the meantime, uh, same time, same place, Wednesdays and Friday show on Twitch and YouTube. And then, uh, um, of course, you know, join us on all the other podcast platforms. We are on every podcast platform now. We have an amazing show today. Very excited. Uh, we're going to be talking to our dear friend and uh, friend of the show, the one and only Kim Kelly, who has a book out called Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. It has been highly anticipated. She's been talking about it when she comes on the show. Uh, I believe it went on sale three days ago. This is so exciting. So we get to talk about the great work of the labor movement and how it's grown really since, um, you know, a, a revival since the 60s. And Kim, you know, she has been an independent labor journalist. Uh, she writes a column for Team Vogue. She's going to tell us about that transformation and what you're going to learn from this incredible book. And then later, we're going to talk about the right wing's attack on the trans community. Uh, obviously, unless you've been like, you know, asleep or something, which I can't imagine you are, uh, you have been hearing what you know the cultural wars they've been putting on. Aaron Reed is going to be joining us. Aaron tracks anti-trans legislation all over the country and runs the largest trans healthcare map an informed consent map listing every informed consent hormone therapy uh, clinic for trans people. She's also uh, publishes on TikTok at Erin Ford. We'll go uh, speak to her later. I know some of you have heard me talk about CBD, but <laughs> I had a little bit of a week uh, last week, and I got to tell you, the only thing that helped me get through it was my Sunset Lake CBD. I say this because I was traveling, and I got sick, and then I wasn't sleeping because I was sick, and then they had me on like antibiotics, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's just the modern day world that we live in, and I try not to take you know, a lot of medicine at all, but CBD does help me, especially if I'm traveling, if I'm stressed. I think I read an article uh, yesterday saying that like millennials are the most anxiety ridden generation. I don't know if it's because they measure it now or 
I mean, I believe it. Like we're sitting in front of our computers all day and it's, you know, in, in the news cycle is, is horrible. But CBD has definitely helped me with anxiety. It's helped me with sleeps, sleep issues and aches and pains. But really, it's only Sunset Lake CBD that's been able to do this or CBD as they say now. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm in Vermont, a former Ben and Jerry's farm in rural Vermont. Uh, they ship it to your door, wherever you are in this country. They have all types of different products. Really, they do. You got to check out. They're they're expanding so fast, and the quality is incredible. They have tinctures. They have uh, premium hemp. They have salves. They have lotion. They have uh, gummies and fudge and dog treats that you can eat too if you want to. My go-to is the tincture before I go to bed with the melatonin because it helps you go to sleep and then stay asleep. The CBD helps me stay asleep. I always wake up in the middle of the night. That's that's my my issue. Um, but it also helps with aches and pains. So if you have like muscle pains at night or anything like that, it also helps soothe that pain. Um, they're a great company. Not only do they have incredible products, and I think there's something about the juju, the energy of the people really cultivating this company and the products and the farm, the love that they put into it. But they also pay their workers a minimum wage of $15 an hour. And the employees own the majority of the company. And on top of all that, they support shows like ours and the Majority Report and the David Pakman Show. Which is sunsetlakecbd.com. Right now, and you type in know me, N-O-M-I, you will get 20% off of order. I urge you to do it. I found out that my family members were doing that some before. But uh, I found out a few others who don't have my last name were not. And they're like, oh, it's okay. We want to support them. I'm like, yeah, but I want, I want folks to know that we're driving them over to sunsetlakecbd.com. So know me, N-O-M-I, and you get 20% off of your order. And they always have incredible deals. Sign up for their mailing list because I, I constantly see new things coming in. Sunsetlakecbd.com. All right, welcome back to TNS. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm just going to read you a little bit from this. Um, in Fight Like Hell, Kim Kelly throws throws wide the doors to inspire all of us to seize power for ourselves by showing how, yesterday and today, the oppressed and overlooked, the outcasts and the misfits, misfits shaped history. That is the one and only international pr president of the Association of Flight Attendants, Sarah Nelson, giving an incredible quote for Kim Kelly's new book called Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. I am so excited. I've been waiting to have this conversation. Kim Kelly um, is also, she's in, she's a labor reporter. Uh, you may know her from Teen Vogue. And is that a book or the poster of your book in the background, Kim? It's a real book. They let you do a real book. Can you it went on sale, what, three days ago? Um, yeah, today. Yeah, the 26th. It came out. They let me get away with it. Can you, <laughs> can you believe it? I can't. How do you feel? It's wild. Like, I'm really happy and I really hope people like it. And I am really worn out from doing all this press tour stuff, but I'm excited to talk to you because I'm like, oh my God, finally one of my friends. 
people, we love you. And I, hopefully everybody has been kind. Although it would be funny. I would love to like see you go on a conservative show and talk about this. And and yeah. it's there's I know there's a lot of conversations around like, should we try and take advantage of these massive uh, like platforms that people have? Like these evil demons like Tucker Carlson. Like I know yeah. Christian Small's got a lot of flack for going on his show. And it, it's definitely an interesting decision. It's a way to reach a lot of people. I don't think I would do well because like Tucker Carlson has already yelled about me on the show before. Like we don't need to. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> hear these things, right? I, yeah. I think it depends <laughs> on the situation. I mean, you can go on like a CNBC or something like that with all the business reporters and, you know, like yeah. a Neil Cavuto on Fox business, but Tucker's got a demonic like, like motive. I mean, he, it's, it's, there are some people you can sway from Fox news that like are not, you know, Trumpian uh, white supremacists, believe it or not. They just, it's like the only news in town. With that being said, it, it, it's something that requires a lot of practice and skill. And I'm not saying that you don't have it. You definitely do. It's just, <laughs> I don't so have the media training for that. <laughs> <laughs> not everybody should, by the way. I, I always say, something like, not everybody should be that person. You know, there are folks who need to do deep work and you've done incredible research here. I don't even... Nowhere to begin because there's so much to talk about. I'm like, can we do a Joe Rogan podcast and do like three hours of this? Not Joe Rogan, like our our version. Um, okay. There's a lot so, in there. And I, I remember most of it at this point. So this is like okay, this is this is so well needed, right? I I mean the labor movement is having a revival. There's there's a lot of energy. Um, when did you start writing this book? I started it, let's see, I think really like March or April 2020 is when I sat down. I was like, oh, I got to write this thing now. And I started trying to write it as I would. And this is true of the entire time I was writing the damn thing. I was going back and forth from Philly, where I live, to Alabama, where I was covering first an effort by uh, Amazon Workers in Bessemer to organize and to try and unionize there. And then I got sucked into this coal miner strike down the road in Brookwood. And I think I lost track of the amount of time I've been back and forth. So I was like doing all this research and sitting in my little office, like being a little gremlin, typing this book up for <laughs> half the time. And the rest of the time I was going down to Alabama into this very current and alive labor conflict. It was it was it definitely an interesting experience. It, and, and at that time, did you feel like there was something different than, you know, a traditional strike that may not be getting attention um, the way now a lot of strikes are? Oh, and with the, the folks in Alabama? Yeah. I mean, they're still on strike. They're out here year two. They eclipsed Pittston. Um, I mean, there's a lot of factors in that strike that have really drawn my interest. And of course, I've become so close with some of the people involved that I, I'm kind of personal. I'm like, yeah. oh, they're my friends. Like, now I need to make sure that people know what my friends are up to and that they get a good contract. But I think something about that strike that has always stuck out to me is the fact that it hasn't gotten as much attention as so many other strikes because of who the workers are and because mm. of assumptions about who they are and assumptions around what they believe or who they voted for or, you know, what they're actually fighting for. And it just goes to show that there's a lot of ignorance around what's happening in more rural areas, maybe in the deep South or in the Midwest or in the Northeast, like or not the Northeast, the Northwest. Like there were so many incredibly important and interesting labor struggles happening around the country all the time. Like mm -hmm. not just New York, not just LA, though they're also important. Like it just kind of solidified this, this idea for me that like, oh, wow, there's literally stuff happening everywhere all the time. There just aren't enough labor reporters, not enough labor friendly pu publications there to cover them all. So at least I can stick with this one. But I mean, but, but you say New York and LA, I mean, th those are media towns. So 
even though you know the Buffalo Starbucks workers were were not you know in New York City, um, it's 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 fascinating because it's it may have in a weird way boosted this existing work that you've been working on um, independently. Now there are more labor reporters or more, at least yeah. there's more labor interest. It's been a while over the past, like, I guess two years since I sat down to do this and I'm talking to you here today. Like it's, it's kind of driven me a little crazy, like as a reporter, cause I'm like, well, I can't, uh, I can't go and cover the Kellogg strike, the John Deere strike, like strike Tober is passing me by cause I have to finish this chapter, but it was so gratifying. And so, uh, just wonderful to see how many people are covering these stories now. I've gotten interest in these stories, whether it's new, brand new labor reporters or other reporters who have become interested in the beat. Like there, it seems like there's so many more of us now, and it's such a wonderful thing to see because like they're never going to be enough to tell every story that needs to be told. But we're in a hell of a better place than we are even when I started like five or six years ago. That's incredible. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about. I don't know where we begin. Um, <laughs> Let's let's say like you know what has happened since the early '60s and and how labor has evolved. Uh, whether you know actually in terms of like actual organized labor, maybe as the politics of the country has changed. I think folks are very familiar with Reagan and and how the Democratic Party um, has disassociated itself with with labor in many ways in the last you know 40 years. But um, how does that? Let's juxtapose the movement, the actual labor organizing with the politics of the time. And I'll just like leave it to you. We'll just kind of build, because there is a lot in this book and I don't even know where to be at this point to be. <laughs> I mean, the 60s and 70s were, were such a, like an incredibly important and like such a vibrant and vital time for organizing, especially in spaces where there were more, more, more marginalized workers who were trying to make things happen. Like um, one of my favorite chapters, uh, The Prisoners, goes into the, the legacy and and past and present of incarcerated workers organizing. In the 70s, there's this explosion of prisoners organizing unions within, you know, within prisons. And in some cases, they're able to work with organized labor outside the walls. And they're kind of like gaining some ground. There are chapters of various um, like prisoners labor unions across the country. And the Supreme Court came in and was like, oh, no, 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 no. You can't be doing all that. Um, there, there are a bunch of legal things that happened before that, right? But essentially, in 1977, a Supreme Court ruled uh, Jones versus North Carolina Prisoners Labor Union basically ruled that people in prison who are working don't have the right to join or organize a union. Like every other worker, well, not every other worker in this country, right? But like so many other workers in this country, they are denied that, even though they go to work and they have a boss and sometimes make a tiny bit of money. They're, they can't clock out and they're not, you know, they, they lost that right. But the workers kept organizing anyway. And I guess that's just one example of how the state has gotten in the way of workers trying to organize. And you know, there's the book is like kind of sort of chronological, but not in like a in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Right. I kind of pick out different pieces and try to try to show how uh, different struggles intersected. So I mean, if there's anything specific that jumps out to you that's interesting or any specific like political fail that jumps out to you too. Like I'm down to get into it. I mean, this is okay. So let's, let's oh God. put you on the spot. <laughs> I know the problem is, is it's, we don't have two hours. I, no, 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 it's fine. Know, right? it up, but I'm, just like, I'm like, I really should have had questions. Like I never do this because it's, it, it's usually just a rolling conversation, but there really is a lot. Okay. So, is, no, it's way more fun this way. Cause I've gone, there's a lot of folks that I've talked to have had like very specific questions about like specific dates or specific strikes. And I'm like, thank you for asking that. 
let me check real quick because like I said, there's so much stuff in here and I wrote it like a year ago and so much has happened. Like a lot of interviews, folks have asked me about the Amazon labor union, which is really fun to learn more about. But like, there are a lot of reporters like Lauren Gurley and Louis Leon, Maximilian Alvarez, like people who have been following that really closely. So I'm always like, just go read what they had to say. And I'll give you my like nerdy historically based take after. (laughs) Because it's in the moment. So I'll, I'll, I'll start with the beginning because this is what I, my personal, um, I think this is lost in the conversation. I'm really glad that you led with women, just how important women have been to labor and still are, by the way, which is why I think this yeah, is great. We're so out here. You've dedicated a few chap- chapters to this. Um, quite a few. I love it. Um, <laughs> I think people know about the garment workers uh, in, in New York I would City. hope. <laughs> well, I should say. I think people That's one of the big ones, right? Like a lot of people, like I feel like the, the big ones that people know about are maybe the Triangle Factory Fire. Yeah. Maybe people know Cesar Chavez. Maybe they know like something about auto workers. But <laughs> that's kind of the, the broad strokes that most people who aren't invested in this stuff or aren't actively studying it know. So I was like, well, let me pull out all these other interesting things and slap them in there. And hopefully we can get, you know... Yeah, just raise, not raise awareness, but just teach people about our history because so much, it hasn't been lost. Like a lot of brilliant historians and uh, like uh, academics and researchers have preserved it and have done really incredible work, you know, digging into that. But it's not that easily accessible. Like there aren't that many radical labor histories sitting around Barnes and Noble. Right. There's there's one now. For now. <laughs> yeah, for now. Hopefully there'll be a whole lot more because this is kind of just the beginning. I hope I hope people pick this up and dig into the bibliography, which is like this thick, and find you know new threads to pull, new books and authors to explore. Cause this is like, yeah, I could only fit so much. I fit a lot, but I, I think we had about like forty thousand words cut because I showed up with this draft. And my editor was like, uh, <laughs> that's like three extra trees worth. Like we can't be doing all that. Oh my God. It's so funny you say that about Barnes and Noble. I was in Europe. It was this last year. I can't even talk because this pandemic is like confusing. But I was in Europe, and I love going to bookstores in Europe because they're just so much better. <laughs> they're like, you, there's a stark difference. You can find books on labor and 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 much mm. stuff that's really hard to find in the U.S. Because even if you go on, and I hate to say Amazon, there's a reason you can't find it on Amazon because it's not, you know, compl- complimentary. It's just so. not a topic. Com- like I think of like one of my favorite bookstores, Houseman's in london they have like mm-hmm. a whole labor section it's like exactly. in the front it's like right there it's like oh yeah of course people should have access to this history it should be easy no, to no. find like, exactly. but i guess it's like the this is my like conspiracy brain right where it's like well no, no, it's the, people, the people in power don't want us to know about how powerful we are because then they're gonna listen no that's yeah. exactly oh, I, I was in scotland i came back and i went to barnes and noble for something and killing time and what i that was like the suggested picks versus what I saw in Scotland was like Andrew Cuomo's <laughs> pandemic book. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> and just like how to get rich and like all the bullshit American. Yeah. If you really want to understand, there's a business that, section or a self help section, but there's not like a labor history section or a people's history section. Like business, I don't, business is who wants to know about business? That's boring. <laughs> and the people who are making money off of it. Uh, they're in their own little circle and they all went to like the same business schools. Yeah, they're so, not traveling to Barnes and Noble. They're not traveling to Barnes and Noble. Um, I do want to talk about the New Deal and labor. Mm, and my girl Francis. Yes. So <laughs> I think there's a lot of folks who, you know, the New Deal, um, 
is 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 critically important. Uh, but there's there's a lot of criticisms also of the New Deal, you know, leaving out many people of color um, in many capacities. But there's an overlap with labor, I guess. I without kind of I don't want to give it all away, but um, how do you feel the New Deal and labor dealt with women, people of color, marginalized communities? Um, given the criticism, like the big picture criticisms of the New Deal. Mm. So, you know, I'm not a New Deal scholar, so I'm sure you know more about it than I do. But in Probably terms not. of what I cover, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're, you know, doing my best out here, right? But in terms of the New Deal and the way that I kind of cover and approach it in the book, I, I kind of approach it through the lens of Frances Perkins, right. who was just this incredible. I actually, man, speaking of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factor, I'm in New York right now. And we, we walked by the plaque that they have on the Brown building, like where the tragedy happened. And of course, there's construction that can get to it. Yeah, like people should be able to check that out. But uh, that, was, that was just kind of nice. I was like, oh, I know you. <laughs> you remember? <laughs> but uh, Frances Perkins was this woman who uh, she, I think she's probably about my age when this happened. She happened to be in New York visiting a friend when the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire happened. And she witnessed it. She could, you know, hear oh, the yeah, screams yeah. and and smell the burning flesh. Like it had an indelible impact on her. And she was already involved in. Uh, she worked for like the Consumer Protection League, something like that, like trying to you know, help out consumers. And she was already interested in social justice and workers' issues. But that kind of changed the trajectory of her whole life. And she became involved in local politics and like different regulatory committees and agencies trying to help with workplace safety and fire safety specifically. And, you know, she did a whole bunch of stuff, but the, the big thing that she did, she ended up being appointed to the cabinet as the first, well, the, uh, the first um, female cabinet member general and definitely the first secretary of labor. And she was a huge, like, put, like she was one of the architects of the New Deal. Like a lot of that came from her. Like she's the one who came up with social security and like, and she was also just involved in all of like all of the worker centric parts of it. Like that was her whole thing. And like one of the big, and she, I think she's just an incredibly fascinating person to read more about, but something that happened during that era was we got some of these labor laws. We got some things that were helpful in a way, but like you said, still left people out. Like we're still dealing with the after effects of that. Like talk about National Labor Relations Act, 1935. That was, that was a big deal that has made it much easier for workers to collectively organize and bargain, but not everybody. It left out several specific categories of workers. One, independent contractors, which is just like, that's a mess. How, <laughs> how much, just Ugh. for folks, like independent contractors then, oh. was it as large of a, a – did we see in the same way as we do now? I don't really know. Like, I don't know as much about the history of that specific classification. Uh, I'd love to learn more about it because, like, it sucks being one. and I love right. how we got into this mess, right? But two of the, the other groups that were left out, explicitly and on purpose, uh, domestic workers and agricultural workers. And at that time, those workers were generally black women and black men. And they were cut out because Southern lawmakers who were racist did not want those workers to be, to have those rights, to be able to organize, to be able to build power. So the only way that they could pass that bill was to cut out these, these more vulnerable workers. And we're still seeing the after effects of that now. And it's kind of like yeah, history rhyming, right? Like the only way we can pass some very useful legislation is to leave a bunch of people out. Right. Wild how we, uh, it seems like they still love doing that. <laughs> Shocker. Um, you do touch on on on, on the racism uh, that occurred during the time. 
we don't have a ton of time. I, again, like there's just so much going <laughs> on. Um, there's a lot in this book. It's really f- phenomenal. Uh, okay. So the Pullman railway porters, porters, I can't say it's, it's a, tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, a Phil Randolph, uh, helped form the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which was like, I think it's the first black, you can lay, uh, black led, predominantly black labor union that was like recognized as part of, um, I'm not sure when they incorporated with AFL, but yeah, they, they're a big deal. We'll just say that they're a big deal. You can read more about in the book, but they're, you know, they were representing Pullman porters, porters who worked on the Pullman company's fancy sleeper cars. And all of those workers were black men. And that was intentional because that's, um, the, I'll, I'll get into it more in the book. I don't want to give too much away. Shout out to Joseph Pullman. What a dick. Um, <laughs> was, basically, yeah, it was like the most, yeah, it, they, these workers really needed a voice in the job. They really needed some help dealing with like the low wages and the outright racism and just all of the garbage that came with working in that environment, serving predominantly white moneyed passengers. And that union was like, that was a huge deal that made a big impact on labor movement. And a lot of people involved in that union went on to be involved in other struggles, whether it's in labor and the civil rights movement. And one part of that struggle that was always, that stood out to me that I, I wanted to dig into was the fact that there are also black women that worked on the, on the, the Pullman cars, the Pullman maids and the union, which is run by men, didn't really have their back. It kind of cut them out. It didn't really advocate for them or include them the way that it, you know, it stood up for, for the men. And it just kind of goes to show that even within these, you know, incredibly necessary and progressive labor organizations that have such, you know, sweeping and crucial goals, like some people still got left out. And I wanted to, you know, there are a bunch of great books about it. Melinda Chateauvere has a great book uh, just specifically about them, but yeah, it was, it just kind of shows a lot of the, one of the big lessons I learned in my book and hopefully readers will learn, like there's always someone who got left out and they had to figure things out on their own, but a lot of times they did it, you know? But the Pullman, this labor um, effort in the beginning, it really was critical for a rising black middle class, as as you stated. Yeah, that was like the, because obviously at that time, like there weren't a lot of options for black men to get good jobs. Like they're Mm -hmm. stuck doing the dirtiest, lowest paying, most dangerous work. And to work as a Pullman porter, it was still, you know, it was still really hard work. There was a lot of discrimination and racism and like the mental strain and anguish of that but it's still at that time was seen as kind of the, like the best gig going. Like if you're a reporter, like you could pass that position down to your son. Like you could, you could build something for your family in a way that hadn't been accessible before. And the union was a big part of making that such a strong option for folks. Uh, Okay. Before we wrap, I want to talk about, uh, because I know our audience is going to be interested in this, red baiting. Mm. I love to talk about red baiting. So, um, when did, ugh, I mean, we McCarthyism was obviously a big factor in this, but how did that influence organizing internally? Oh man, there are so many instances, like in the book and just throughout labor history, of like these just eight, like incredibly effective and beloved and radical uh, organizers and rank and file worker leaders who just because like they were socialists or anarchists or communists, they're part of the wrong party, had the wrong card in their wallet. They were blacklisted, they were intimidated, they were abused, they're run out of the movement entirely. And it's just like, it's just so, it's not funny. It's it's just so absurd because like so many of the most important organizers in labor history in the US 
have been socialists and anarchists and communists. Like, of course, it's the radicals who are willing to put everything on the line and to push for a better future. Like, you kind of have to have a little bit of that big sky thinking if you're going to try and go from like point A to point Z, like the way that so many of these workers have had to. Uh, I mean, I think about, um, I wrote about her more for the nation. I couldn't squeeze her in as much as I wanted to. But uh, just to uh, organize her name, Emma Teneyuka, who was really involved in a pecan, shell, pecan sheller strike in Texas, and I think it was the 30s. And she was just an incredibly effective organizer who was blacklisted and like moved out of town because her family was being threatened because she was a communist. And like, it's just such an absurd thing that so few people who don't already have an interest or a stake in learning more about it, like so few people know how important like radicals have been to the history of this country, even like, and like the best stuff, like all the stuff the Democrats like to take credit for, like, yeah. <laughs> thank you, Kami, for that, honestly. <laughs> hashtag. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting though, because like they were even driven out of unions. I mean, this is, yeah. I I, th- I think in, especially in context of, of where we are today and in understanding how uh, labor can be disrupted and people can be smeared. I mean, we've seen these efforts with, with Christian Smalls, obviously it was a very big story on um, how mm. You know the the emails that were sent out about him, but also just um, elected officials. Like on the electoral side, it is it is a great way to divide and conquer and ostracize folks. Um, they're still using the same tactics, but uh, I think the conditions are just ripe for more organizing. Um, and you've you've really laid out a great toolkit, I guess, is, is you know, read your history, understand your history, essential reading. Oh my God, I want to talk about this more. I hope to have you, well, you're, you're on all the time, but maybe next time we can, I'll just like find one chapter because there's so much. Yeah. I there's, lots, yeah. and there's like so much I couldn't fit in there because like, thankfully there's so many brilliant historians who have done so much deeper digging into this that like, I wanted to squeeze in everything. And there's so much I don't know still that I, I'm still continuing to research and continue to learn about this stuff. So you can imagine like it, it just it just never ends right like the people's history it's there's never a stopping point because we're living through it right now exactly well that means you're going to have many books <laughs> so people buy this one I'm sorry. <laughs> go buy it wait i have mirrored the thing here right now so i can't even fight like hell there you go uh don't buy it on amazon or barnes and noble go buy it from uh Bookshop. Bookshelf. Indie, what, bookshelf? Is that what you want? Uh, bookshop.org. It's um, bookshop. it's a way that oh, you can it. support independent booksellers and indie bound, like, you know, beg, bar, steal, order it from your library. You know, it, I love the library thing. Some people have done that too. Yeah, but yeah, you I also just, want to make money, so. Yeah, I just want people to read it, you know? Oh. <laughs> Spoken like really a want. true progressive. <laughs> I just want people to read it. I don't want to make I wrote money. it for people to read on their break or on the bus, like. This is our history, and we deserve to know about it. Go check it out. Essential uh, reading, summertime reading if you have a vacation. Good stuff. And it also, the other thing is it's like it's super informative, but it reads well. Like, you're a great storyteller. Thank I you. I should have led with that. I appreciate that. <laughs> I tried to make it fun because no one's going to want to sit here and read a 300-page history book if there isn't a little, you know, pizzazz in there. <laughs> well, you're all pizzazz. Kim Kelly, thank you, as always, for joining us. Uh, go check out Fight, Fight Like Hell. Indie booksellers, that's where you got to find them. If you are lucky enough to have an independent bookstore that could sell it, you can also order it from there because we have one in our neighborhood. And when they don't have books, I say, can you order this? And they love when I do that. Yeah. So you can also do that too. Make sure yeah. to 
demand that they bring it forward and not like 9,000 copies of an RBG like <laughs> picture book. Every D bookseller in New York is like, there's like an RBG picture book. <laughs> and support union booksellers, you know? There's a lot of those out there now. <laughs> booksellers are workers too. We're all in it together. Indeed. Kim Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck with the book tour. (laughs) See you next time. All right, we'll be right back after this quick break to talk about, oh my God, the right wing, the right wing organizing right now across the country um, against trans people and this this legislation uh, that's been passed and impacted all over this world. And what's happening? I will be right back. The Low Mickey Show. Yeah. Uh-huh. We live in crazy times where the tech giants seem to want to own every single part of our lives, literally our data. They want to own how we're able to make money. Do you remember the days when you could post something on YouTube and then it would like fall, you know, it would lead you to another amazing YouTube show. And then uh, you'd, I remember I was thinking about this the other day, I was on YouTube and I, I found all these like amazing actors putting together their own shows and they were so funny. Yeah, that doesn't exist anymore. That is not what YouTube is anymore. Um, so why do I say that? Because we're not in the era where you can just explode and make millions of dollars on YouTube overnight unless you're really boosted or on the right wing. No, we are in the era where it's got to be word of mouth and community driven. And that is why Patreon has been so important to us because as the algorithms change, as they play around on all these different platforms owned by the biggest oligarchs and nutty people in the world uh, who have a very conservative agenda, anti-labor agenda, Patreon has really kept us going. And we are so incredibly grateful to our existing patrons, our former patrons. If you are a former patron and you want to come back, let us know. We'll work it out. Uh, go to patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show, starting off at $5. That is, by the way, no longer a New York City coffee. I got one right here. I went downstairs today. My New York City iced coffee. It ain't $5 anymore. It was, I'm not kidding you. Are you ready for this? $8.50. 850. So maybe we should put inflation prices in there. Um, no, really. We're, we're not going to do that. Uh, $8.50. And I'm not going to blame it on anything but the rent because the rent is too damn high in New York. It's nothing else. You got to pay your workers. You got to do well. Uh, the coffee is incredible, but it's because of the rent. But if you go to, back to, back to us, <laughs> coffee is what keeps me going here. Um, Patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. All different levels. If you've had to jump around, you know, let us know. We we will work with you. Email us at the Nomi Key Show at gmail.com. We've got swag, we've got mugs, we've got bags. Send us your photos of your swag. That would be incredible. All right. Thank you all. Um, we will be right back after this quick break. saying that um, in your bill, you will help 
kids. So exactly how are you going to help kids? With what, what the help? With therapy. You know, we want to treat these children, and a lot of them have underlying reasons, um, underlying problems. You know, in the medical field, if you have an infection and that infection gets so bad, you become septic where that, where that infection has spread to your bloodstream. And so doctors don't just start throwing antibiotics or medicine at you. They find the root cause of that infection. And so the root cause of a lot of this gender dysphoria is abuse, sexual abuse, depression, anxiety, um, different things like autism or uh, obsessive compulsive disorders, social contagions. There's all kinds of root causes that we need better therapy to get to the basis of. I will always agree on therapy because I believe that therapy is needed for everybody. But I do not believe that comparing um, these kids who believe that, that they're, not, they're not in the right body, I, I do not believe uh, comparing them to an infection. Um, and I do not think that they have a whole bunch of the underlying diseases that you've just said. Uh, I investigated child abuse and neglect for a really long time. I'm a licensed master social worker. This is my background. So I'm telling you that trauma is not indicative of, of, of having um, a different gender identity. Like that, that's not interchangeable. That is not something, there's right. not direct correlation there. But is that being thoroughly evaluated when they treat them? When they Do see they go through psychological evaluations? Time, they go one time and then they get referred to the gender clinic. Okay. So are you aware of any therapy that happens prior to that? Do you not think that parents I've heard are... stories right here in Missouri where they're okay. not. They go okay. to a counselor with confusion and they're uh -huh. automatically referred are, to a gender clinic. Are, are you in those therapy sessions? No. And, it, okay. and, and we're not allowed to know what happens. Right. Because those are confidential. Right. They're right. private. Oh, boy. Because those are confidential. Because those are confidential. Oh, boy. All right. That was a clip of, oh, my gosh, a Missouri State uh, Representative, Pollock, Republican, of course, presenting her anti-trans Save Adolescents from Experimentation Bill, saying youth questioning their gender is like a, an infection that becomes septic and that autism may be an underlying cause? I'm confused. What's the underlying cause here? All right. This is just one of the many examples of the right wing's total uh, brain. I don't even know what, what's going on. I don't, I, I don't know if any of these people actually believe it or they just realize that they need a culture war to win um, and to go after folks uh, of, of, of any type. And maybe, you know, in some cases, it's it's a one-two punch. Go after people's health care. Um, of course, uh, put the trans community in danger. Uh, you know, make conservative, make make a the parents more conservative. I don't know. They've got a lot of strategies. Of course, taking on education. You're watching it. It's happening all over the country. This is a movement now by the right. Aaron Reed uh, tracks anti-trans legislation all over the country and runs the largest trans healthcare map. Uh, an informed consent map listing every informed consent hormone therapy clinic for trans people. Uh, and you can, you can go check out Aaron's TikTok at Aaron in the morn. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And yeah, that was, um, like you mentioned, that was Representative Pollock. And at that same hearing later on, just like a few minutes later, they brought on a witness who was actually a conversion therapist. And they asked her how she would treat the trans kids in Missouri and conversion therapy was their go-to. Like she had I mean, stated I that. I can't.
even at this point? Like it's pretty ridiculous. This is insane. Okay. So let's let's just start off with you. Um, you have this map. What what when did you start it? How do you go about tracking? Because I imagine, you know, some of these efforts are underway kind of behind the scenes before they go public. So so how how do you go about this process? Are you are you referring to the, yes, the important map. map right here? Yes. And so um three years ago, whenever I originally transitioned, I had heard that there was something called informed consent HRT clinics. These are clinics that you can go to um, that are not gate kept behind two years of therapy, real life experience, basically how they used to do things with transition about two years ago, uh, because not everybody can afford to spend thousands and thousands of dollars on therapy before they're allowed to transition and obtain their hormones. Uh, the thing is, is that these clinics were not in a centralized repository or one place. A lot of times they're just word of mouth. So you go on Reddit, you go on um, forums that are on the internet, you look for resources that are put out by local organizations that list them, but they weren't put in one place. And so um, about a year after my transition, I realized that like I had to do a lot of searching to find my map or to find my mm -hmm. location that I go to. And so I figured I would just spend some time and like, go through and all of these resources, put them on a Google Maps and, and just share it publicly. So after sharing it publicly, um, a lot of people were, they started giving their own clinics and it became kind of a community resource rather than just something that I put in there. And it's just become this large list of like 800 clinics. It's been viewed, I think, 2.2 million times. This is incredible. It really is an incredible amount of research. Um, so, you know, you track the legislation, the right wing, uh, the attacks on on the trans community. We hear almost every day, like a new bill comes out, a new hearing, a new tweet. Is there a sense at this point how many um, bills are are in the works? Uh, okay, you do. You have that. Yeah. So there's a lot of numbers out there because the thing is, is that these bills are being brought up every day. They're dying right. every day. And then there are some from the previous year that kind of can still be considered alive right now. Numbers that I hear range between 150 and 250 bills, um, the most in the history of the United States in terms of anti-LGBT legislation. And you're right. They are popping up every day. Um, I think that like right now you played the one from the Missouri hearing. That one is currently in the stables. Like it may be about to go to the um, to the Senate and to the House of Missouri and pass it. Um, there was, you know, a pronoun bill that popped up in Tennessee recently that would have given um, people, uh, teachers in Tennessee, the right to misgender your students, but only if you're transgender. So like you, they couldn't misgender a cisgender student. It's literally just directed at trans students. Um, you know, there are bills that are popping up in Alabama just passed, passed one recently where they, so... This was crazy. They, they just had one bill and it was a bill to detransition trans youth, which passed in Alabama. However, they then substituted another bill to become a bathroom ban. Um, so trans people that are in schools as well as teachers can't go to the restroom of their gender identity. And then added to that at the last minute, a don't say gay bill. So, you know, they, they just kind of like they're putting everything together. Everything. And, they're, and then abortion bans too. There's just this list of yeah. like everything on top of it. Like. And, and I'm glad, I'm glad that you mentioned abortion bans because the thing is, is that the same organizations that are going after, you know, transgender and LGBT people are the same ones that are going after uh, abortion. And so, you know, you have ALEC, uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council, ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, both of them are pushing these laws. 
I'm so glad that you mentioned that because that, that was where I wanted to go is who are the messaging is like almost, you know, it's not just like, oh, Tucker Carlson says it on TV and then everybody mimics it or Laura Ingram or whoever. Um, it really does seem to be like they have there's there's lawmakers all over the country who have a set of talking points, may not even understand how to defend them, as we just saw. Um but it's coming from somewhere. We're, Alec is is an incredible uh, tool for the right wing to spread, and and the Koch brothers to spread their agenda, um, and, and especially using culture wars now. But do you know like where the is this coming out of the Heritage Foundation? Is there like a specific group that has lobbied very hard to make trans issues the um, the big culture issue of our time? I mean, culture. I'm saying in their terms, not ours. It's a human rights issue, in, in my perspective. Um, do you think that is there like one group that was really behind this that felt like this is where they had to go? So it's weird. It, this is this is it's there's a web and there's it's it's a pretty big network of groups that are involved. But the two that you always hear are like I just mentioned, Alec and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Alliance Defending Freedom, their hands are in everything. And the thing is, is that um, they actually have. It's a very strange sort of cross pollination with the. United Kingdom's wave of um, trans exclusion, trans exclusionary radical feminism, so turfism in the United Kingdom, and so they're borrowing some of the things that are coming from there. And they're actually, it's really strange, but they're actually financially donating to groups like the Women's um, Wolf, the Women's Liberation Front, and these are these are people who, on on their face, you know, if you just look at their mission statements and such, you wouldn't imagine that they would be fitting with each other because you know ADF is in favor of banning abortion and has lobbied for SB8 in Texas whereas Wolf has been you know they're they're ostensibly a feminist organization however you know they're getting money and they're using the same arguments and they're actually creating resources together like they've they've branded understanding gender dysphoria in children like this guidebook and it has ADF branding and it's got like Wolf branding and it's just the strangest thing to see with one another do we have a sense of the funding? Like, are there a group of donors that seem to be pushing this through these different organizations? The funding is really dark, you know, and yeah. I don't, I have not researched too much into the funding. Um, I know that it's hard to get a grasp for who is giving the money to ADF and and all these other organizations that are out there. Um, and they don't really report a lot on this stuff. Um, in terms of polling, I you know, Fox News and the right wing can make issues a thing. And suddenly, you know, like now everyone's talking about pedophilia, I'm, oh God. <laughs> which is the groomer stuff has been pretty intense. Yeah. So is it is there a sense like. I feel like Democrats or progressive well, Democrats in particular, like center Dems will pull something before they champion it. I feel like the far right invents something and then makes it makes the polls move. Have have you seen in terms of polling, um, say ten years ago when I don't even know when did the first uh, the, the the trans bathroom bills when did when did those uh, 20, 2015 ish that twenty fifteen not even yeah. that long give or take um, yeah. was that the first big issue that was you know it was nationally? it was and there was a clear blow up against that issue at the time. Um, you had a lot of organizations that pulled out of North Carolina. Uh, which ended up sinking that bill. They pulled back pretty heavily. And actually, there has been some, um, I, I don't have the exact like quote or research with me, but there was some organization or, or some news that came out that showed that this year, um, the strategy 
was specifically to get all of these bills passed in several states at once. So that way, if you did have a backlash, it would be much harder to sustain that backlash to, you know, 15 states. Um, But you did mention polling. And one thing that I will say that was really interesting that came out just yesterday um, was a civics poll. And what what, what it came out with was that um, the the question was, are issues involving trans Americans important to you? Mm -hmm. And among Democrats, they answered 73 percent. Yes. Among Republicans, they answered 35 percent. Yes. And so Hmm. on the left, there is a strong sense of caring for these issues. However, there hasn't been a like a well-sustained pushback among Democrats for these bills. Do you think there's, um, do you think it's because they realize they can win on the right and they can go to war with Democrats and, and basically push them into fighting these issues that they've invented because they have control of the legislature, because it's like, oh, here's how we, I'm, and this is the most ruthless way as a, as a Republican you know, strategist might be thinking, well, Republicans are going to do whatever we want them to do no matter what, even if they care about it or don't. But Democrats care about this. So let's go after them on this, have them uh, use their resources. And in the meantime, we can chip away at the rights of, of you know, trans people, uh, women who are seeking abortions. And, and in the case of CRT, you know, you've got people of color and teachers. <laughs> so let's just go for them all at once. Totally, totally. Absolutely. And that that's 100% part of it. But I don't think that it's the whole story because in states where they have a massive majority, so we're talking like my state of Maryland or uh, Hawaii, there are these bills um, that would offer equal healthcare protections, for instance, to transgender people. And in Maryland, the bill got spiked at the last moment. In Hawaii, which is literally 24 Democrat, one Republican, there is currently a healthcare bill that if passed, would make life so much better and so much easier for the trans people in Hawaii. And that bill is currently sitting in conference committee. It's been delayed twice right now at this moment. I think they're probably going to be discussing it. And I mean, I don't want to see that bill get spiked either. So, I mean, yes, I think that that's part of it. But I think even in places where we ostensibly have a lot of allies, we still need help. We still need those bills Mm -hmm. to pass. We still need people to act at home. And I wonder, is is this because maybe there's Democrats who think that there are more culturally conservative Democrats that they need to win still? Very possibly, but like 24 to one, like you can pass that and still get rid of like half of your Democrats and still, whereas in the meanwhile, in the meanwhile, you know, we see a poll like the civics poll that shows 72% of Democrats find transgender issues to be important to them. Like I, even in, even in places where they're not going to risk anything, like there's no risk, we can't get the bills passed. And so I think that there is an issue of having spoken to some of the um, the people doing the work on the ground, a lot of Democrats are simply uncomfortable. A lot of legislators are simply uncomfortable with trans topics. Like they, I've, I've spoken to them and like they've talked about how going to these legislators, speaking to them, you know, they've got to work through a lot of really basic questions and a lot of uncomfortable moments. And they still get the response of, you know, the kind of response that you'd expect sometimes from Republicans where they're just like, I just don't know how I feel about this, that kind of stuff. <laughs> a lot of education still have. So a lot of education to be done. Seriously. A lot. And and I learned something. I, you know, I've 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 seen some stories on TikTok, um, especially 
just how difficult a day in the life of someone who's trans is because of a lot of the legislation, because of a lot of ridiculous rules. Um, let's play this clip of the airport. Sure, sure. I know you're like, oh, yeah, I know. I'm <laughs> like, what? <laughs> let's play this clip. If you're cisgender, did you know that most transgender people have to arrive to the airport 15 minutes earlier than you in order to get there at the same time? This is just one of many time taxes that apply to being trans. If you don't understand, I'll explain. Airport body scanners are built under the assumption that your anatomy matches your gender presentation. So when it doesn't, it's gonna think that you're smuggling a bomb. Watch this. The TSA officer will press a button designating a gender based on how you present yourself, male or female. So this is clearly pretty ridiculous, but this is what a lot of transgender people have to go through when they go to the airport. And in fact, if you read the TSA guidance for transgender people, it literally says to get there early. So recently, the federal government said that they would change these machines. However, Lauren Boebert just filed a bill to block those changes. It really sucks to know that there's an entire political party dedicated to making life harder for trans people. So this is like my, this, the time tax is incredible. Erin, um, what other examples do you have of, of how your life is just like more inconvenient and difficult because part, I mean, obviously there's legislation like Lauren Boebert wanting to block any sort of uh, basic switch. I mean, like, like, like that's not difficult for TSA to do. They don't care. But Lauren Boebert's like, no, I'm going to punish you. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it's not a huge deal to change these machines and the algorithms. I actually have spoken to some of the programmers. One of the programmers that's involved is transgender herself. And so um, that's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a huge deal, but they're, they're, they're still trying to block it. And there's no policy objective that that serves. It literally is just designed to make life harder. But there, there are like a lot of other things that people might take for granted that end up taking a whole lot longer just because, you know, my gender identity doesn't match what I was assigned at birth. So um, my birth certificate is a huge deal. Like my birth certificate having my dead name on it and having my um, old gender on it. Anytime that like I need to prove that I am my son's parent and I have my driver's license as my current name. Um, but, you know, like I have to show on his birth certificate and it's got my old name on it. I have to then like bring bring out my name change documents, bring out like a whole lot of other things. Um, same with like my passports, you know, I, I have to, I'm trying to get my passport right now. And in order to do that, you have to send in your birth certificate, which is pretty trivial for a lot of people, but because my birth certificate doesn't match my current name, I've got to also send in a lot of other stuff and I got to gather them from different places, which also then costs money. And a lot of times, you know, it'd be a lot easier if I could just send in my birth certificate, like that would that'd be so much easier. But because I'm from Louisiana, the uh, policies around changing your birth certificate are very difficult. And, and so in order for me to change my name and my birth certificate, being from Louisiana, I have to fly out to Louisiana. Um, I, got, I have to appear in front of a judge in my home county, uh, which my home county is like an 87% Trump county and judges are elected. And so oh it's, it's going to be a rough like deal and I'm going to do it. Like I'm, it's, I'm, planning on it. And I'm, I'm going to be, I'm working on making those reservations. COVID, COVID kind of slowed things down for me on that front. Um, but yeah, like it's, there, there's all kinds of things that, you know, you just kind of run into. 
And, and in terms of voting, are there any issues? I mean, we, we know how Republicans love to go after any sort of uh, uh, person that does not fit their, <laughs> their white supremacist like dreamscape um, in terms of voting, but specifically, you know, marginalized communities and people of color. Given that, I mean, there are voter ID laws that exist in many parts of the country now. Does that affect your ability? Oh, totally. To I mean, because, you know, like... I I know that a lot of times trans people might be stuck filing like a provisional ballot or something because of the fact that their driver's license doesn't match their birth certificate, which doesn't match what they have on file at the voting place. And if you move from one state to another state and you still have your old state driver's license, like there's all kinds of issues. I know that, for instance, college students can vote where where they go to college at. But college students, like somebody in a red state that comes from Maryland, where you can change your gender and your driver's license by attestation, might then go to like Nebraska or something where they have different laws around that. And so if they try to go and vote and they present their voter ID, the voter ID doesn't match, you know, the records, then, you know, things can, things can get really messy. And we take all this stuff so much for granted. Um... And, and this is why I think your work is so powerful and that you're informing people and really pulling back the curtain so folks understand just how many of these laws are across the country. Um, also providing information for the trans community in that um, you have this incredible map that you've been working on for a few years now, but also just like your TikTok. It's, it's, it's really like, this is how you take action. This is what's happening. Did you know this? Um, it's really incredibly informative and I would love to have you back on to talk more. I know that this issue, <laughs> Republicans are just going to keep going. Um, so it's not going to end. There's <laughs> <laughs> more to fight on. Um, before we wrap, who, uh, is there like, I know it's happening all over the country, but is there like one state or maybe like one representative, um, that we should really keep our eye on? Um, right now, I think that the big, oh God, it's, there, there are a few, like even, even narrowing it down to one. Okay. So for instance, um, right now, Texas, Greg Abbott and, and Paxton child abuse, they're trying to enforce being trans as child abuse, but also in Florida with, um, the governor of Florida just releasing a guidance that says that youth should be banned from social transition. And that's the next big scary one that I see. Uh, this goes beyond just like hormone therapy or anything. This is like literally telling kids that they can't present as anything other than their gender at birth. And, and what does that even mean? Like, like I, haircuts, I, I, like, they're, yeah. like, that's all it is. Haircuts and clothes and pronouns, like for most And how do you use it? Is that a kilt? Like, is that, does that count? No, I don't know. Right, right. Who, exactly. Who right. It's dumb. Are you going to go after Harry Styles? Like, what? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right. All right, Aaron Reed, it's absurd, but it's dangerous. That's why the Republicans are so scary. It seems so ridiculous, except they're actually accomplishing these things. Yep. Um, dystopian times that we live in. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really, really fascinating conversation. Go check out Aaron in the morn, uh, Twitter and, and TikTok. And of course, we've got the links on the map up there, the resources that you've provided. Really appreciate you joining us for Fun Friday and hope to have you back again soon. Totally. Thank you for having me. All right, we got some shout outs. Really great shout outs here. Jade B, thanks for becoming a patron and Penelope A. I love the name Penelope so much. It's like one of my favorites. Britt S, thank you so much for doubling your pledge over on Patreon. Patreon, excuse me. 
Um, Britt asks, says, just want to say thank you so much for your work, everything that your show does. I look forward to hearing Amiki every week. I lived in New York City while she was campaigning for public advocate and got to canvas for her. Just a true inspiration. I wanted to say how much your voice and insight mean. You guys mean so much. Thank you for your voice, for all that, all of your work and everything. Oh my God. Thank you. That was so kind. Oh my goodness. Every once in a while, I get even notes like this and it just... You have tough days and you hear so much negativity on the internet and so much it's just bullshit. Um, so thank you, everybody. And then on Twitch, I want to give a shout out to Old Man House Phone. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> thank you for your bits. And Matt Binder rated. Thanks, Matt. Mel Wrangler, thank you for resubscribing. Last suit. Thank you so much for your bits. Uh, everybody's so grateful. I also want to give two more shout outs. Uh, Gabrielle, who was my incredible server recently. Gabrielle, um, made my day also a listener and then when i was in san francisco last week geez i couldn't like i couldn't have a better week um love running into incredible people but uh mo made our really i had a very tumultuous trip to san francisco i ended up in the hospital i was very sick um but i, I recovered very quickly but mo made my friday last friday was it friday thursday thursday last thursday uh thank you to mo for being incredible um, server and joy and we were having a wine tasting and Mo has been watching and listening to our work since uh, I think 2015 uh, and and learned a lot about the Democratic Party and I, I love this kinds of story it happens every once in a while and I figured I would do some shout outs on the show now um, when it happens so thank you everybody for tuning in today for this Femme Friday we're taking a quick break and then we'll be back in another week with brand new guests uh, and then uh, let's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, just join us on uh, all, all the places. I'm like, I don't even know how to rap. I have like vacation brain right now. Um, make sure to check us out on YouTube and Twitch and Twitter and Facebook and of course Patreon and all the podcast platforms. In the meantime, be well and stay in solidarity. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. The No Miki Show. The No Miki Show.